Hi, welcome to Notes from the Road. I'm your host, Evan Peary. I've spent more than a decade on tour with acts like Pentatonix, Dan and Shay, and Andy Mineo. And I've slept everywhere from tour buses and floors to one-star hotel rooms and 15-passenger vans. My goal with this podcast is to provide a window into the side of touring life you don't see on Instagram or MTV. The behind-the-scenes, nitty-gritty tales of comedy, chaos, and camaraderie. Every episode, I'll be speaking with a different touring professional I've met along the way, giving them the opportunity to tell their story of how they got started, where they're headed, and everything else in between. This episode, I'm joined by Michael Bethencourt, who's worked with Newfound Glory, Lyle Lovett, and Jason Isbell, to name a few. Michael, a Texas native, has gone from playing keys and guitar as a sideman for a seminal pop-punk band to becoming the go-to tech for a group of powerhouses in rock, bluegrass, and Americana. We talk about never being too old to learn something new, eliminating points of failure, and that patience is truly a virtue and can even save your life. This is Notes from the Road with Michael Bethencourt. Uh, welcome to Notes from the Road. Hey, thanks. We are literally in our living room, yep. as relaxed as we can be. Um, Michael has been my lovely roommate for over two years now. Hard to believe. It is, right? It is. I've owned a house for two years. and Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you've been a part of that whole thing from day one. Here I am. Hey. Um, but so for me, bringing Michael on today's show, uh, important because I get to hear all his lovely stories every time he comes home from tour as well. So we kind of share um, interesting stories each time. And we were doing that this morning. He just came off uh, a tour working for Jason Isbell, as he has for a few years. Uh, They just finished a tour with Father John Misty. Um, So kind of hearing what that was like. And uh, I threw out the idea to Michael a little bit ago uh, that what I wanted to kind of make the focus of this episode be in terms of him is craftsman or craft um, because he has been um, primarily uh, teching on, in the touring world for the last few years but for a while he was also playing I know that we'll circle back to that but uh, the kind of overarching thought I had here was craftsman so he has you know learned how to become a basic guitar tech but now has become one of sort of the go-to guys here in Nashville where we both live um, in that world of completely understanding a guitar and its tone, its sound, its shape, its feel. Um, And then gone from teching instruments that were potentially new or newer to now holding guitars that are worth more than the house that we're sitting in. So um, just kind of running the gamut on what he does for a living, um, which no one has so far that's come on has single like singularly done one thing that's brought them to the level of, you know, guitar tech slash luthier ish vibe like Michael. Certainly ish. Yeah. Yeah. But I know you've learned a lot of those elements. Um, but that was, that's sort of it. So if you want to take me back to the beginning, which is where we usually start in terms of like, what are your first memories of being asked to go on tour or touring? Uh, Michael is a native of Texas. Yeah. Growing up in Tyler, Texas, which was about 100 miles east of Dallas, mm-hmm. um, the a lot of us were, were somewhat insulated from, you know, the the global music community and kind of what was going on outside of where we were. You know, a few of us were lucky enough to uh, maybe go to Dallas every once in a while to catch a show. Or, uh, you know, when I say lucky, I mean, we had 
maybe parents who would let us drive up there, parents who would drive us themselves, sure. or, uh, or maybe the older friend or two who, who might go for a little road trip. But, um, you know, for the most part, we were kind of relying on what was happening in, in Tyler or what was happening on MTV. So, you know, the, the music scene kind of skewed in a, a couple of different directions, but, um, uh, you know, there was a, a, a good scene happening there. People were interested in music and, and art as a whole. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to grow up with, uh, grandparents who were involved in the arts. Um, both of my, my maternal and paternal grandmothers were, uh, artists in their own right. And, um, uh, always encouraged me to be involved in, in that way. Well, and so were you, I, I know, I mean, I know this, but I guess to just reiterate, Michael also plays several instruments. So like, were they sort of around to help you navigate that too? They, like, they, what, weren't, what? they weren't on the music side of things at all. They were, they were both painters and sculptors um, alike. And, uh, you know, neither one of them certainly ever uh, nudged me towards a, a career in music. They knew mm-hmm. way better than to propose something silly like that. I feel like product of their generation too. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. yeah it's just how it was. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's one thing my mom constantly asked me, like, what would Mima think if she could just see what you've done? And it, <laughs> but and in it like cracks a good, me but up. In like but in a good a, way? Yeah, yeah, in a yeah. good way. Not like you sure showed her, but in like she would be proud of you despite of all the things that she would have preferred that you had done. Sure. But um, but certainly, you know, they encouraged me to be artistic. And, and growing up, I would take uh, art lessons. And, and when I say artistic, I mean in a, in a global sense. But early on, they were, in, you know, encouraging me to, to paint and draw and do all that stuff, none of which I was any good at at all. But um, we, we had some neighbors that, uh, you know— there's a kid my age and a kid younger and uh, and a kid a little bit older than me and I looked up to the kid that was older than me a lot and he played guitar and he listened to Guns N' Roses and this was 1990 or 91 mm-hmm. um, and that was kind of the first thing that I heard that like I mean I'd certainly heard music that had moved me before but uh, Guns N' Roses like it kind of flipped a switch for me I, yeah, all for, of a sudden especially for guitar playing yeah I just wanted to rip solos all mm-hmm. the time and uh, you know eventually you know played with friends' guitars, somebody loaned me something, and I'd, I'd mess around with it until they wanted it back. And, um, you know, ultimately, 12 years old, got a guitar, was was totally enamored with it, played it all the time, and, um, you know, just kind of grew up learning what I could, and and, and I was never the, the best uh, at practicing or, or really sticking with it, but I would, you know, would always come back around to it. It was always kind of like uh, just what I would always circle back to. Um and uh, so, yeah, I, you know, ended up playing in a bunch of bands throughout like middle school and high school, had buddies that played. And, um, you know, from there, I just continued to play. I tried college for a minute after high school. It wasn't necessarily for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, I kind of did it because it was the next thing. It was the uh, the next thing on the course that had been pre-plotted uh, before I had done anything else. Right. And, um, uh, you know, I really didn't try, if, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I... Uh, I tried the things that I liked and uh, did not get give much effort to the things that I didn't really care for and, uh, you know, dropped out, I guess, I was 20. And, um, you know, it was the right move for me at the time. Uh, you know, started working at a music shop, working on guitars, um, and the, the owners of the shop were nice enough to let me, like, play in bands and eventually, like, you know, go on tour for a couple of weeks at a time and I could come back and, and they would let me have a job. Um, so I was certainly, certainly lucky in, in that regard, but, um, 
ultimately, you know, just through through other friends uh, that lived in Tyler, uh, met up with uh, you know some of the guys from Newfound Glory or one of the guys from New, Newfound Glory, I should say, and then um, uh, eventually kind of teamed up with them. They were nice enough to to invite me to come out on tour to to play keys and third guitar with them and. Uh, you know, that was kind of my first experience. I'd been touring in, in different bands, you know, whether we were in a van and trailer or a minivan or a suburban, mm-hmm. whether it was kind of like rock or bluegrass, I kind of would do whatever people would allow me to do sure. with them. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, but yeah, th- that was my first like real pro touring. We had day sheets and set lists that were printed on a printer. Um, <laughs> right. And not just like scrawled out five minutes before the set on a, you, on a napkin with a, a borrowed Sharpie. You also sort of jumped right into like the busiest time in, in that point of Newfound's career. You know, they were coming off to major label releases, right? And yeah, so certainly. you were coming in to fill that, that role of um, playing keys, which were prominent on one of those records that had come out at that point. Absolutely. So. They had, they had cut a record that, that had a lot of keyboard, a lot of organ, a lot of piano and stuff on it. And, um, and they're not the kind of guys uh, that want to go out there and fake it and you know play to tracks right. and, and and do that. So they were they they invited me out and you know for a good like two two and a half years I was just kind of playing keyboards and, and occasional guitar for a living and it was um, a little bit mind blowing. Got to to really see yeah. you know all the corners of the world with these guys and played music for a while and then they cut a record that like didn't have any keyboards on it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the guys came to me and said, hey, man, like, we we want you around. Like, we, we don't want you to, to have to go away. But at the same time, like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to have you out here to play on, like, three, like, play piano on three songs a night. It doesn't make right. any sense at all, which I certainly understood. Um, and they knew that I had, I had worked on guitars for a long time uh, when I was home working mm-hmm. at that music shop. And, um and it, you know, at times worked on my own instruments on the road and, uh, you know, tried to, I, I certainly probably wasn't much of a help, but I tried to help on the production side of things sometimes when I honestly wasn't being a brat. Um, but, uh, it's easy to do, I'm, I'm afraid. But, um, so yeah, I just kind of got into that and I was, uh, doing guitars, uh, teching guitars and, and playing keys for three or four songs a night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that, you know, with them for a, another three years, I think, um, before, you know, our, uh, you know, we just kind of run its course. Um, yeah. Well, Michael and I, that's when Michael and I would have crossed paths. So when I was working for four years strong, Michael was out working with newfound glory along with one of our other good buds, Brian, um, him and Brian were sort of like each side of the stage representing whoever played on that side of the stage, teching for them. Um, and I'll, I'll just never forget just a welcoming bunch of guys, you know, like we showed up and we're, you know, this was over a decade ago of like, right. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, and just like a super welcoming group, you know, like they were our captains for lack of a better word of like to the stage, you know, like Brian and Michael sort of were the ones we were taking our cues from like when to get on and get off and get out of the way and just kind of learning what worked in that you know, like in pop punk, like Newfound sort of became sort of the gold standard of like how to do it because they had achieved more success than some of their other peers. 
And so like little tricks and things and, and elements that would make it go faster. Like, I don't know, Fourier was always impressed with like the banner work, you know, and the scrims and like, just like, and I know that wasn't anything that Michael and Brian necessarily chose, but like they were in charge of it all and getting it on and off the stage and like what seemed like it was lighter weight or what made sense, like, and watching just like the two of them work in terms of teching because like we didn't have any of that for you. It was just me and five guys and a merch guy, you know? So like they were handling a lot of that themselves. So seeing like what a professional rig in that term, you know, in that timeline looked like was like Michael and Brian were like really showcasing their work and hard work and, and efficiencies and, you know, it was, it was certainly fun. It's, um, you know, the, the pop punk world wasn't one that I necessarily grew up in. Um, it was certain, not certainly on my radar, but, um, you know, tour to tour, I, I was meeting a lot of these people for the first time, hearing a lot of these bands for the first time. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so it was always fun to kind of uh, see what everyone's approach was and mm-hmm. see how people had figured out how to do it. Because, you know, I, in the punk rock world, like there's no matter how deep you go, no matter how much money somebody's making, how much crew somebody has, how many buses they're riding in or whatever, there's still... Uh, you know, at the heart of it, there's got to be this DIY, DIY mentality right. to make things work um, and to and to make things work well. So it's uh, it's certainly an era of my life that I owe a lot to, um, and it's uh, you know the constraints of certain types of tours, you know, made me better at doing tours that way, doing doing things with res- with restraints and kind of figuring out the puzzle and figuring out how to how to make it all work together you know, where you are with what you've got. Um, but yeah, from the, the, the warp tour world and the, the punk rock world that I was in for so long, I, um, it was warp 2012, I believe that I decided, you know, I, I want to just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, not get away from it. I still have, a, you know, a ton of friends from that world, clearly a, yep. a roommate from that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that you ever leave behind, but, um, you know, on a, professional level i wanted to see what else was out there and see what i could would could get done um so i kind of went home for a little while and uh worked weird jobs and just you know figured out how to pay rent and and do all that and uh figured if the right thing was going to come along it was going to come along Mm -hmm. um and uh ended up on a tour uh working with jim james who is the singer of my morning jacket and he just put out a a solo record and they needed a guy they were hoping for somebody nashville based at this point i had moved here um and uh and it was lucky enough to get on with them we um we did a bunch of of tours with jim and i did one uh full tour with my morning jacket which was uh you know pretty pretty insane it was the the summer after the last warp tour i did and a year later i was working with my morning jacket and on tour with bob dylan and wilco and Crazy. doing this massive tour and, yeah. and to to be you know, fully honest, I felt like I was getting my ass whipped on that tour day to day. Um, you know, the shows were great and the band was great. And, uh, you know, the crew that I was working with were, were solid. Really, yeah, they all really seem amazing like people. in the interactions I've had with them here, the coolest dudes Absolutely. across the board. Like fantastic human beings. Um, but it was a, a shock. You know, I, uh, I know certain people who had, who had reached out to me and said like, man, this is great. You're doing this new thing. And right. it's like really, really cool. And, and that made me feel cool. But at the same time, like I was 
just learning so much and feeling like I was just behind big, constantly. Big learning curve. Big learning curve. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, the guys that have been out there and, and been on the road for 30 and 40 years, especially mm-hmm. in, in Dylan's camp, that's true. Um, you're talking about some real, like, actual legends in the industry. Sure. That, um, that know what they're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I really tried to, to figure out how to adapt the way I did things to the way they were doing things. Um and I, you know, that's when I learned that lesson. You know, it's I, I can have my way of, of doing things, but if it doesn't work in the big picture, uh, you know, in within the within the terms of the show itself, it doesn't really matter. Like we, you know, if everybody's got to work together, everybody's got to work together. You can't really do your own thing. Um, so I kind of learned that on on that tour. That's are you saying I, like teamwork aspect? Yeah, or certainly. You, I mean, yeah. you know, like. <clears throat> that the crew, the crew really needed to rely on each other. More. Yeah, absolutely. There, you know, there's just a, a a workflow to things, and and that really starts from the top down. You know, with the the PM and the the stage manager and how things are going to operate. And you know, it was it was something that I had to learn, and I you know probably learned it the hard way, if I was being totally honest. Um, just because my way wasn't getting it done, and I was just kind of looking like an asshole. Can I say asshole? Yeah, because I looked can. like an asshole. And, um, uh, you know, I, you figured out real quick, it's just, it's, it's easier, uh, and, and just smarter to not full assimilation. You know, if, if you've got a great way of doing things, you've got a great way of doing things, but, um, you have to make sure that that fits in the, in the grand scheme of things. It's sure. not something you can crowbar in. Right. Would you also, do you feel like the, the idea of like, you're never too old to keep learning something new or paying paying attention to what works best and what doesn't oh that's certainly true whether no. it's like your team or like other people out there no I, I feel like the 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 minute you think you don't have anything else to learn is the minute that you're done um and and that that's pretty across the board I, yeah. I think that's not just in in touring but uh just in life in general if you if you, if you think you've got it figured out that's precisely when you don't um, and yeah, that, that certainly works on the touring world. You know, I, I really try and learn, um, three significant new things that relate to my job yeah. every year. Um, and if I have to think too long about what to focus my attention on, I'm probably in trouble because I'm, I'm, uh, so ignorant of myself <laughs> that I'm, I've, I'm probably already doing a bad job. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I try and try and get better at a lot of things and try and just learn new, new, new things, uh, as much as is reasonable. Um, and then, so from Jim to, cause I know both Lyle Lovett and Allison Krauss are sort of in the mix of that timeline too. Like where, what was that? What was the next trajectory in terms of like moving from Jim to the next gig? Uh, it's going to circle back to, to the Warp Tour days, to tell you the truth. I um, uh, was in Nashville. My time with uh, Jim and My Morning Jacket was up. I was uh, filling in for Jim's longtime guitar tech. So I was 2013. That was my like beginning and ending date. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So after that was uh, over, or really when it was kind of nearing a close, I was looking at what was next and trying to figure some stuff out. And um, I had a gig in Nashville. Um, it was with kind of a, an up and coming country artist. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing, but it was, uh, you know, it was money for the next year. Right. And, uh, I was lucky enough for them to, to come to me a few weeks out from the tour starting and saying like, Hey, we, it's not happening. 
we don't have room in the budget. <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't have room in the budget. It's we're so sorry, but but we got to leave you behind. And uh, so I ended up going to uh, a, a buddy of ours, Daryl Bentfield, who I knew when he was working with Yellow Card okay. on Warp Tour. Right. And uh, and he's in Nashville now, and he's uh, doing doing some great work. And he uh, he said, "Man, I may have something for you." Um, we talked. I went down to the office and, and visited with him and his boss and. Um, they ended up putting me out on Alison Krauss and, uh, you know, got to really work with some, some people who I'd looked up to for 20 years. Sure. Um, and, uh, uh, people who I'm really lucky enough to count as, as real friends now. Um, but they did things a different way than I was doing the summer before. You right. Know? Um, and the way they were doing it was not any better or any worse than the way that we were doing it with My Morning Jacket. Um, it was just a different thing. It was a different band and a different show, and it mm. required a different approach. Well, just uh, in case anybody that's listening really doesn't know that transition, Michael went from working for a pretty rock and roll, alternative e, heavy, loud, you know, My Morning Jacket's still pretty loud too. Big, loud rock band. Playing yeah. bluegrass, you know, more of a bluegrass, Americana, quieter. Can certainly, be, certainly. You know, yeah. so that's a, that's a big... Uh, distinct change, you know, going from and, and then coming off of kind of punk where like people sweat through everything in a show and your strength, you know, Mike, in Michael's case, like dealing with guitars, like he's he's getting handed a soaked guitar at the end of the night. Sometimes, yeah. Cutting to now working for very particular set of musicians who care for their instruments. And again, the, some of those instruments might be valued higher than this the cost of this house. And and they might play on those strings for shows, multiple, right? Uh, yeah, I in mean, some of those cases. Yeah, it depends on depends on the uh, the gig. What was so funny on on that one was that uh, we had a couple of days of production rehearsals, and uh, I had gone down early and kind of gotten all my things set up. And as the the guys in the band came in, I spoke with them about their needs and you know how I needed to uh, you know address those needs, you know, in terms of string changes and guitar handoffs and stuff like that. Just kind of getting some of the the little stuff out of the way. Um, and one by one, all the, you know, the three guitar players in the band, they all kind of said, Oh, but we'll, we'll change our own strings. You don't have to change our strings at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and each one of them kind of had a different reason for doing it. You know, for, for one, it was cathartic. And, uh, for one, I, you know, if I remember right, I think he said it was just like packing his own shoot. Sure. Um, which I, which is a great analogy. Great analogy. Um, uh, and for one, it was, he said, you know, well, I play a, a bunch when I'm not out with Allison and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a tech change in my strings then. I need to keep my chops up on that level mm-hmm. um, to, uh, to be good at that too. Right. Um, you know, so initially I thought maybe I was getting a pay cut, um, but then I just realized this is just a different world. It's just done differently and that's right. kind of how this is it and that's how this gig is. Um, I was lucky enough to, I got really bored and begged to change some guitar strings one day and I was allowed to do that a few times. So that was nice. Um, but yeah, on the whole, it was, you know, some extremely high quality instruments. Um, some, you know, some of great age and provenance, um, you know, some that were pretty new, but, uh, but all of them very specifically set up for the artist. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of them, yeah, super valuable and, uh, and very important to these guys. So it was a, it was kind of a new level for me in terms of, um, 
you know, the, the level of instruments that I was really kind of dealing with. That sure. was my first, yeah. uh, first go around with some serious, serious, serious instruments. Yeah. And now for everybody just listening, um, in terms of provenance, that just means like the historical value of the instrument or the, the history of that particular instrument. Yeah, absolutely. You know, who's owned it before, where it's been played, what it's been played on, uh, stuff like that. And, um, you know, with Allison, you know, a lot of these instruments were played on, you know, certainly a lot of her records. Right. Um, but also, uh, you know, these these are the folks that did the uh, the soundtrack and score for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And, you know, love the movie or hate the movie, you know, that, you know, that film and its soundtrack were, you know, they were responsible for the, you know, uh, resurgence of bluegrass in right. eight, late 90s, early mm-hmm. aughts. Mm-hmm. Um a historically significant record. So I, when I started really kind of framing things to myself that way, I started realizing what they're doing is important. Like what, you know, what they're creating is important, uh, not just to themselves and their own livelihood, but to, uh, you know, to a lot of people all over the world that are hearing this music for the first time and, you know, kind of having their horizons broadened, so to speak. Right. Um, so you, you know, I started looking at who I was working for in, in a more existential way, not just, um, you know, what's the gig? How many guitar changes am I doing per show? But, you know, outside of that, just like, how is the art that they're creating affecting people? And how am I doing and facilitating that, that art? Am I you're not facilitating the art, but facilitating the opportunity to make that art? Right. Um, you know, if, am I, if I'm getting in somebody's way, I'm not doing my job. Uh, if somebody forgets I'm there, if nobody knows I'm there, if things are just happening right, things are happening the right way, that's when I know I'm doing a good job. Not because I'm noticed, uh, but because because I'm unnoticed. Really. Yeah. I mean, I think a critical aspect to um, a backline tech across the board, whatever the instrument happens to be, is the less you see that person the more prep work they've done. And we've talked about this sort of off and on for two years. Like you've said it, the more prep you can put into it and the cleaner it is and the less snags and the less, you know, it keeps the artist happy when they're not even, like you just said, when they're not even realizing things are just going well, that means things are going well. That's it. Yeah. Yep. You know, so toiling, Michael Michael has a, um, he'll go down and work in the shop and, and do some prep. And, you know, he was like, I just put in eight hours today so I don't have to put in, I don't have to scramble onto the stage mid-show to fix X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's, you know? it's and it's all pretty interconnected too. I mean, um, I've never, ever, like, regretted doing extra work. It's just never happened. I, uh, you know, there are plenty of times where I thought, like, mid-show, well, shit, I probably... I probably could have done a little more to this. I could have been a little more attentive to this, but by that time, it's you know it's over. Um, you know, it's just too late. So I, I really just when I can, I try and do that extra stuff, like make it easier. You know, you kind of make yourself a little bit bulletproof. Um, you know, eliminate all those potential points of failure. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I've I've never done too much prep work. Well, because that the the eliminating points of failure, I feel like Michael also. Um, lately has gotten very deep into working on people's pedal boards and designing and critiquing and then refining 
all of that. And I feel like that's the thing you've talked about with me whenever I ask you how that's going. Your, you know, your thought is that little, those little things make a big difference. Absolutely. Can, can make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, when, and I'd, I'd like to do more of that if I, if I had more time, but, um, you know, some of the guys that I work with, you know, Jason and, uh, and some of the guys in his band, like I've been lucky enough to build out all of their stuff and, and, and a few others, but it's, uh, you know, there are just certain things that, that come into play. Like, you know, if I'm doing a pedal board, I'm, I'm going to really try to keep everything under 50 pounds with a case fully loaded because a lot of these guys are flying, you know, there are, there are things to look at outside of how pretty is this thing? Mm-hmm. How, uh, how easy is everything to step on? You know, right. there's a, uh, there are things that you have to consider, you know, how they're going to work within an entire production. Um, I think also just us touring people understand flight restrictions of luggage more than everybody else in the world in terms of like, what's the maximum circumference of the thing? It can't weigh more than 70 pounds overall. Cause like even the extra bag fees, there's still a maximum weight. Certainly, yeah. You know, so it's like somebody like Michael, like you just said, designing, <clears throat> when you're designing something for an artist, you want to make sure that your thought isn't ever going to get like the axe, you know, because they happen to want to take it outside of North American touring or, you know, um, a, a tour where it just gets put on a truck every night that it's kind of bulletproof to travel the world. Yeah, so, it needs to, needs to go everywhere. Yeah. It needs to be able to go everywhere. Sure. Um, and then, so anyway, back to the, just transitioning into tour life. So you did that, you did your time out with Allison. Yeah, I did a, a couple of summers with Allison, um, you know, both tours with Willie Nelson, which was kind of, uh, life affirming, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, I know there's a photo out there of Michael playing his guitar. So I know he's gotten to hold that guitar in his lifetime, which yeah, I'm pretty just jealous with, of. Just the goofiest face ever. I tried to look cool. Uh, somebody took probably a dozen pictures and I just looked like the same child and like all of happy 12 year old boy. Yeah. Just ecstatic. Just didn't know what to do. Yeah. Um, just so confused and so happy all at the same time. Um, but yeah, so did those two summers with Allison, um, in between those two tours, uh, or I should say the, you know, the first summer that I was with Allison, uh, we had, uh, three legs of the tour and three different openers. And, uh, on one of the legs, Jason Isbell was opening and, I got to know uh, uh, his tour manager a little bit and, and some of his guys. And, uh, you know, ultimately when they, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, when they had a little bit of a production budget, they were able to uh, call me and we, we were able to work something out. And I went out and started touring with Jason. And then um, he was nice enough to let me go out with Allison that summer um, because I had already committed, uh, committed to, to that. Mm-hmm. Um and and really anytime you get a, a chance to tour with those guys and or Willie, like you just kinda yeah. can't really mess with that. So um I went out that summer and, and joined back up with Jason. I've I've been with him ever since. Um I've, you know, had a couple of uh tours with a, a couple other artists, but you know, all within uh uh little breaks that I've that I've had with Jason. Um you know, with the exception of a, a couple of summers ago, I, I went out with Lyle Lovett for a couple of months, um, which was quite an experience there as well. Um, yeah. Big band. Everybody's just the most professional. Um, uh, and, and really some, 
you know, aside from Lyle himself, some other real legends in that band. And, um, and not just from a, like, I've heard of him perspective, but, you know, a guy like Harvey Thompson, who's the tenor sax player in the Muscle Shoals Horns, who played with Lyle all the time. And, you know, that guy was, you know, he basically influenced Jimi Hendrix to move to Nashville whenever he was stationed in Kentucky, you know. He uh, played on a million records uh, in Muscle Shoals. Just, you know, an unbelievable resume. Um, you know, there was Harvey, there was Russ Kunkel, who's Lyle's drummer, who was, you know, he played with Linda Ronstadt and Carly Simon and all these people. And, uh, you know, on top of that, he was the first drummer in Spinal Tap that died, which was crazy. Sick. I learned, I learned I about that. that on the golf course with Russ and I heard about that and I did not, I was not cool about it <laughs> at all. I thought I'd be like kind of slick and maybe just bring it up but i i must have looked like a a dalmatian with my tongue wagging just you're in spinal tap i just not cool <laughs> at all um but just like an incredible band sure. and, and and to to see those guys uh and and women do what they did uh was was just a delight every night um and I was super, super lucky to to get to go out and work with those folks. Would you say because we've I know we've talked about this off this podcast a bunch, like sort of the most professional thing you had done up until that point in terms of just everyone's demeanor, attire, which I know has come up, you know, like and professional in like a classic sense, like people are dressed, people are, you know, like things Certainly. are on time, things are there's a there's a reason for everything, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. Every, everything was very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not to say that other tours that I've been yeah, on that, before that. Yeah, that's not what I was implying, been, but I just but, meant like, I feel like that was your, you, you've you talked about that everything was very specifically done in a very specific fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, that's another thing that I picked up from that tour and tried to implement into to my own touring life. Right. Um, you know, just being intentional and kind of really being on the ball with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, really thinking your day through, uh, budgeting your time and your energy, and right. um, you know, because at, at the end of the day, you you can you can work all day and work so hard, but you still got to be ready for loadout. You know, the show's got to go great. True. The loadout's got to go great. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's a there's a lot of gear uh, and a lot of people, and. You know, we had to be very specific about how we did things. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was certainly the way that that tour influenced me the most. I think, um, but it was it was uh, definitely an honor to work with those folks and uh, to get to tour with them. But um, yeah, I was able to come back and uh, I think I was home for sixteen hours, and then I turned around <laughs> and went back out on tour with Jason for another six weeks after an 11 week run with Lyle. But, and that, and now that from sort of that point on, it's been pretty steady. Jason is bull. It's been pretty much Jason all the time. Um, uh, you know, I've worked on other people's guitars and done little stuff around town right. Yeah, for, for as far as my touring stuff, it's been all Jason since then. He's, he's been a busy dude. He's released yeah. a couple records since then. Grammy award winning uh, yeah. record. Some, some Grammy award winning stuff. And, um, yeah, happy to be where I am for sure. Um, and so in that you've also, uh, you, you are now in that world, the stage manager as well. Is that correct? In the Jason Isbell camp. So like kind of like turning your attention from just one thing to making sure the whole show goes off without a hitch for the most part. Yeah. It's, a um, and, and I've been stage managing for, for different bands for a while. Um, not for Allison or for my morning jacket or for, for Lyle at all. But, um, 
you know, on a smaller scale, I, I had been doing that to a degree. Um, but with Jason, yeah, it's really the first tour that I've been stage managing where we're carrying significant production sure. and doing a lot of stuff. And it, it uh, you know, it, it grows, you know, the, the production that we carry fluctuates a little bit. Uh, we just did that tour that you mentioned earlier with Father John Misty where, um, you know, we made it work to where we carried a full PA and uh, did a whole lot of stuff. So yeah. we, we were in, you know, with Jason, we're in one truck. Um, you know, on that co-headliner, we were three trucks. Um, so, I mean, it's, that's a significant jump. It's a significant jump, keep for track sure. Of, that's a lot more more to keep track um, of. And it's, you know, but it's just kind of an addition to the puddle, puzzle. Excuse me. <laughs> um, you, uh, you know, it's just 40,000 more things that you just have to be really right. specific about, sure. intentional about. Um, but, but, you know, we have uh, a great crew and, and, and great guys that really own their, their gigs. Um, we... Uh, try not to be like uber departmentalized you know everybody can help anybody but um but everybody's pretty on it man we you know we uh were able to to all pretty much do our thing and 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 make it all work and and the guys that i work with certainly make it a lot easier on me um by them just being on top of their stuff so it uh you know it could have been a, a giant pain in the ass but but everybody on that tour was uh you know ready to jump in and ready to help and um we had a good time as a result, for sure. Um, to to go back to what you said a little bit ago in terms of things you've been trying to like pick up on or learn or improve on a year. What's your 2019 right now? Like, what have you improved on, or what? Like, you know, because since you brought it up, I think that's actually a great thought to maybe carry forward on on this podcast from now on too. But 2019 started for me. The first thing that I wanted to get a whole lot better at was MIDI programming. Um, I had just rebuilt Jason's new rig, um, and we went from, I think we had three MIDI components in the first iteration to 14 in this newest iteration. Um, so there were some things that I needed to learn for sure. And real quick, just so, because I've heard a little bit, but what is that, connect the dots on that uh, in terms of like modern guitar pedals and guitar well, MIDI is, is basically a, a language. It's it's a way to send uh, commands to and from different pieces of gear that are uh, uh, using that technology, um, which has been around for years and years. Right. Um, but uh, in our case, you know, all of Jason's pedals are racked up and they're, uh, you know, next to his amps upstage. And, uh, you know, he just has a controller, you know, on his pedal board that kind of tells everything in the rack what to do. Um, you know, it's still very much guitar into pedals, into amps. Um, you know, we're not like reinventing the wheel with this stuff. We're just kind of like giving it a different road to travel. Right. This is the interface of all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so knowing, you know, somebody has to tell the controller what the rack to do, Mm -hmm. um, uh, or what the rack is to do. Um, so I, you know, I just really had to to dig into that a little bit more. You know, I had I had a little bit of knowledge about that from the first time I had done it a few years ago, um, but uh, you know, as uh, as technology changes, the language evolves, and you're able to do more things with more things, and um, you know, it was just something that I needed to like buckle down and, and get a really good grip on. So that was the the beginning of 2019. Um, uh, with that uh, that co-headlining tour that we did, I figured. Uh, that month, uh, stage managing essentially the biggest tour that I had stage managed would be enough of a, a thing to right. to learn. Um, and I'm kind of 
trying to figure out uh, what to do with the back half of my year. Um, we've got a lot of stuff going on, and I'm um, going to be really as busy as I want to be, so I'm kind of looking for the, the next thing. Um, but, uh, I mean, one thing with touring year to year uh, that I really try and kind of work on, aside from just learning techniques that make me better at working on guitars or amps or pedals, um, is kind of like diving and like looking at the world where we're traveling um, and uh, who we're interacting with and how to speak to people. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the way I speak to a union steward in Birmingham is not the say I, same way I speak to a union steward in Detroit. Um, you know, people are diff- speaking different languages. Yeah. And um, uh, getting good at finding common ground with the people that you've hired locally to, to work with is really, really important. Yeah. Um, uh, if you're not on the same page, you know, it's, uh, it gets really unfun when you're waiting on loadout to finish up and it's one thirty, and you've got half of your crew looking at you cause you know, it's your fault. So it's, you know, it, that's something else that I've tried to, to figure out yeah, this year, just, you know, being a, a little more conscious of who I'm speaking with. It's kind of a crazy notion just in terms of, um, we travel every day. We're in a new place almost every day. Yeah. And like Michael just said, people's attitudes, fuses, the the locale, everybody's always a little bit more um, light on their feet, on their tippy toes through New York City and Boston and maybe Chicago and you know, because we just know locally that those are strong unions or just people that have been doing this job a very long time. So you do your best to work with them, but those are classically also cities with the biggest attitudes, you know, I mean, in general, depends. just known for that, across, you know, like New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, like it just in a general like subcultural text is like, they're big cities, they're big cities physically and emotionally. And then, you know, like, if you said New York City to somebody, they think of Jerry Orbach from, you know, like that. They think of that. They think of that character he played as a detective. You know, like yep. I'm just saying, like, so you really, you like Michael just said, you're you're trying your best to like find something to keep everybody on the same level and everybody working efficiently. And it might not be the way you do it always, but that one day you're letting people do it how they do it because it's just going to get the job done more efficiently and quicker or certainly yeah. certainly i mean th- we have kind of a, a way that we do our loadouts and uh hyper departmentalize the loadout and i you know give people color-coded wristbands and all this goofy mm-hmm. nonsense mm-hmm. and there are some places where i just don't do that because it's not better right like, um we had vests on our tour like full color like ten, five color vests i'm sure and they, i, I did sure, watch i'm a sure night, they loved that but i did watch a night or two where i think those just got shelved yeah it, yeah. it happens you know some there there are spots where people just you know it's going to put them in a bad mood working mm-hmm. and whether or not that's okay is not an argument to be had in that moment right um you know you let them do their job like they, you know you go into a, a big union house like we we typically will play the beacon when we're in new york and that's local one. And, you know, local one has a, a certain reputation in certain circles. But, I, you know, we've always had great experiences with those guys at that, at that room. Um, you know, we, we just got done with the tour. We're, we dealt with a lot of local houses. And, and ultimately, like, those guys are there every single day. Yeah, they know, they know the space They know better. the place. They know mm-hmm. how to do their thing. And, mm-hmm. like, that's a, 
you know, that's a room where maybe I'm going to go in there once a year, twice a year, and I think I have it figured out, but these guys might have a better way. Right. And it, it goes back to the learning thing. Like, you know, if I had just, if I had done the last five shows at the Beacon my way, because it's my way and that's the only way I do things, then I would have missed out on a whole lot of opportunities to learn something. Um, you know, now I go to the Beacon and like, we know those guys and they definitely let us do our thing. We we're in their house though. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're in their spot. They know how to do what they need to do and they do it and they do it well. So yeah. we get out of their way. Yeah. Yes. Um, to stay on the topic of just question and answer moment here. Um, been doing this every episode just to see what everyone's answers are, because I feel like they're all completely unique. Um, but touring essential for you. So, Computer, phone are always excluded from this list because most of us carry those things just to function on the road. But Certainly. so it can be a personal item or it can also just be something in your guitar specific world that like you can't live without to, to do a show. Or you could answer both if well, you want. I have, there's one specific thing that goes with me to every single show that I do. Um, and, and this might not be what you're really looking for, but it's it's the only thing that I have that goes with me to every show. Okay. Um, and it's an old pair of wire cutters that I've had for, I don't know, probably a dozen years. Right. Um, and five or six years ago, I was on a show doing some prep work, needed to like snip through a loom. Um, and I was just being impatient and hasty and stupid. And I snipped through it without having pulled the AC line on it. Um, and of course like sparks went everywhere. It was the craziest thing, scared the hell out of me. And when I picked up the, the wire cutters, there was a, you know, a big ring kind of burned into it. Um, which I immediately, like I took those and I taped them up onto my workbox, onto the lid of my workbox. And it's just a reminder not to be a complete moron ever. Um, because it will kill you. Wow. Uh, I, uh, Yeah. I'll never get rid of them. They they go in my little travel box. They're in my my big like U.S. touring work box. What a reminder to not to take one more breath. Yeah. Before you do something. Yeah. Don't be so stupid. It's great. I like that one. It's it's the only thing I got that I think really really applies. Yeah. Um, and then, just advice to yourself five and ten years ago. Can you can answer either one first, but. You know, like, so in some of those transitional periods of maybe touring in five years ago or 10 years ago, like, what's your advice to yourself? Um, Save money, for one. Okay. Um, You know, I think a lot of guys who who get started touring, uh, you know, they they get out of the band and um, it's a lot of guys treat it like vacation. I'm out of the house. I don't have this responsibility. I don't have that responsibility. I can just kind of go nuts. And, and, uh, you know, I've certainly like fell into that for a little while. Um, I was having a really, really good time and then coming home and going, well, this really sucks now. Um, so, you know, me 10 years ago. Yeah. Just save your money. Don't act like such a jagweed. Be, be a little, just, be 10% more responsible. Sure. Um, my advice to myself five years ago, um, you might think you're working fast, but people are still waiting on you. 
like <laughs> figure it out. Right. Um, and that was, you know, that was when I was like getting into like bigger and, and higher end touring, if you want to call it that, I probably ridiculous, but, um, and I thought I was working well, but like there were a million things I could have improved. Um, and, and speed is, is highly valued on, on tour. Um, uh, it's certainly not the most important thing, but, uh, when somebody's slow in that moment, it certainly seems like the most important thing. Right. Um, so yeah, five years ago, like keep your head down, keep working. Like you just because you're rushed doesn't mean you're going fast. Fair. Um, and now I just have questions on in your specific uh, line of work over this illustrious career so far. <laughs> what what has been your I, I'll I'll let you get top three on this one now since you've seen some interesting guitars, but like top three favorite guitars to actually get to work on or hold or play or you know. Um. Goodness, there have been quite a few at this point. You know, because I know in our just generic chats about life and guitars, because I'm always curious because I like watches. And so I always try and try and get Michael to give me comparisons on like, I've learned this about this watch and why this year and era or version is specific and more valuable or more sought after. And then I can, Michael always has a great like guitar comparison, like why certain year Fender is more valuable, et cetera. So it's like always interesting to hear, you know, Michael said provenance is also part of like why a guitar can be valuable. Like who played it? What was it played on maybe? Or what year, what year plus all those things. Um, so, and he's gotten lucky enough to just be in the presence of hold, play, work on some yeah, of these in, guitars. In some cases. Yeah. So, um, well, definitely in the hold slash play category, we mentioned it earlier, but Willie's guitar trigger, like, yeah. um, just, you know, is it the nicest guitar ever? God, no. You know, it's a it's a 69 Martin N20, which was a, a it's a really nice guitar, um, but it's not like, it's not some like mind-blowing thing mm-hmm. on that level. Um, but when you start thinking about what songs had been written on this guitar, what songs had been played on this guitar, where the song had been played, how or where the guitar had been played. How many shows have been played on yeah, the guitar? How many thousands of shows just... Uh, um, and Willie is like a, a, an actual like personal hero of mine in a lot of different ways. So it was it was neat to to have um, some weird connection to that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that guitar was definitely it. But uh, that would definitely be one of them. Um, uh, there's a, an old Les Paul that Jason um, grabbed a, a few months back, and it used to be owned by Ed King, uh, who was in Leonard Skinner for a long time. Um, but uh, for those that don't know, like, I'm not sure who really decided this, but at some point, guitars started getting names and these uh, these old Les Paul sunbursts that Gibson made from 58 through 60, um, highly sought after. And they all seem to have a name. And uh, this guitar in, in specifics is, is called Red Eye. It's a 59 Les Paul. Um, and I could go over a whole bunch of stuff that would be the most boring to your <laughs> listeners, but I'll just say it's the best guitar that I've ever played. Um, it's, uh, it might be the best guitar ever made. Uh, there's, you know, there's certainly a context to that, that I don't necessarily share with a whole lot of people, but, um, well, and it's, I think that's like anything else that people yeah. collect. It's, it's all, everything's great. Everything's crap. 
Right. It's Who personal. Likes what? It's personal, um, personal. I mean, but, there's historical value and then there's personal certainly. preference. So, um, but yeah, in my world, mm-hmm. that's the best guitar I've ever, ever seen or heard about. Um, so that's, you know, definitely a big time guitar. Um, and, you know, through working with, with Allison and her guys and a number of other people, like there are a lot of old Martins and, uh, and stuff that I've been lucky enough to play. Um, uh, There's a 58 Explorer that I uh, got to play a while back, which was cool. one of very few. Um, uh, I don't know. There's, they, be careful asking me about guitars. I'm just going to like start nerding out, and I'll just talk for 45 minutes. Well, yeah, but I just I figured you also have have had the the privilege to see and experience and work on some of these. So you know, certainly, I'm sure there's some people out there that would love to hear more if they could. Sure. <laughs> Next episode. Um, <laughs> I feel like we just covered so much in a very, very specific amount of time, and I love that. I feel like I don't breathe often. I just talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> Welcome to my world and the other side of this. Um, uh, I guess there's also always a segment where if, would you like to let people know where they can find you? Because Michael also, aside from working specifically for Jason for the most part these days, that's like his main gig, he does do work on guitars and also is a a pretty big appreciator of vintage guitars and knows a lot more than he's letting on right now because he doesn't want to bore us. But I I love it because I could let him go forever. Um, Is there a place people can find you if they want to reach out to you about any of that stuff or just talking guitars or... Yeah, I guess my Instagram would be the... I mean, God, I sound like such a child saying that. Yeah, but but that's that's the point. You know, um, people want to get a hold of you. Yeah, I don't don't, like really do Facebook... Um, uh, in my friendster account, I think is <laughs> probably long gone. Probably long gone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess my Instagram is at the Michael Luke, just the way it sounds. Cool. Um, DMs are open, baby. <laughs> Shoot Michael a DM. <laughs> for real, he's also you're you're. I know you're you're always kind of on the hunt for guitars as well. If anybody's got anything interesting, yeah, juicy, I'm, I'm always snooping around. Shoot Michael a DM. Um, I feel like what are we looking for right now? 355, 335? What yeah, are we looking for? Yeah, any anything 335, 45, or 55 from 58 to 60 is yeah, kinda, he's looking for some Gibson on my list, but yeah. That's that's kind of what I'm after these days is old Gibson stuff. Cool. Yeah. Michael Bethencourt. Evan. Thank you for taking time in our living room today to talk to me. Yeah, buddy. Thank you for all the coffee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh we'll catch you next time. See ya. Big thanks to my roomie, Michael Bethencourt, for sitting in our living room casually and recording this episode. It was a goal of mine from the start, uh, just being able to be super calm and chill in our living room and uh, not having to think too much. I hope you really paid attention to the portion about Michael almost electrocuting himself. And the biggest takeaway I took from that is everybody just needs to slow down. We all need to slow down and save our life a little bit more. It might actually end up saving our life. So again, thank you, Michael, for uh, hanging out in our living room for this one. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Notes from the Road Pod and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and then of course check us out on SoundCloud. You can interact with me there. Uh, there's a comments and notes section. So come, let us know what you think of these episodes. 
Notes from the Road is produced and engineered by Isaac Burkhart, along with production and design by Andrew Cook. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs>